Well, good morning. Welcome to Parkwood this morning. Hope you got your Bibles with you. We're in Psalm 17. As we work our way one chapter at a time through the book of Psalms, we're getting to some Psalms that have a little bit of length to them. And uh, so when we can, we want to read the whole Psalms. But when we can't, we're going to have a central text and then we'll work through them. So we're going to look at every, almost every verse today. This is, as we just get our minds oriented toward the text, this is an individual lament psalm. So it's written by David as he laments. He is declaring his innocence. He is, he is pleading for righteous justice. He's pleading for justice here and protection. And at the end, he's declaring delight. So let's just keep your seats today. Look with me in Psalm 17. Let's read 6 to 9 just to grab the heart of this text. And then we'll pray for us ourselves. I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me, hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do me violence. My deadly enemies who surround me, Lord. Help us today. Because every one of us is in a varied season of life. Those that we love are in different seasons. Some are here, some are not. Some would like to be here watching over the internet. And Lord, would you stir in us, in us, Lord, that which should be our ultimate satisfying delight this morning. Convict us, O oh Lord, if the object of our satisfaction does not bear witness to what Scripture said. Lord, we are here to be encouraged and instructed by your word and to delight in you. And so, Lord, this is our prayer, Lord, that we would delight in you more when we leave and when we arrive. Speak to us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So, common grace and special grace. You ever heard of those terms? Sort of doctrinal, theological kind of language, but they're important. It's important to understand common grace because we call it common, not because it's not wonderful, but because everyone experiences it. Everyone experiences common grace. The lost, the saved. The lost have families. They have children. They experience the wonder of creation. They get food. They're going to eat lunch like us. We go out to eat after this. We'll see the Redeemed and the unredeemed sitting beside each other enjoying God's common grace. You hear it said even the atheist has to sit on God's lap to spit in his face. That's true. Because the unredeemed are experiencing ice cream. Ice cream, what a grace. But it's common grace. These are wonderful things. But what is special grace? Special grace is the grace that brings people to God. 
to salvation brings people into salvation. We also call it saving grace. So is it wrong for believers to enjoy common grace? No. Matter of fact, I think it's wrong if we don't. One of our apologetics when we engage someone who's lost is creation. It's fine-tuned. We're going to see this even in our bodies today. It's fine-tuned for, for man so that we can enjoy it. We should enjoy it. But when does it become idolatry? When can common grace and our satisfying, being satisfied, become sin or just unhealthy? So I want to end here. I want to begin here with just the same questions. What's satisfying you? Where's your ultimate delight? You see, this helps us know where right now you are looking for refuge. And you are. When life turns upside down on you, you're going to run somewhere for refuge. And where you will run is that in which you delight. The image here that we're seeing in the psalm is a picture of refuge over and over in the psalms. He uses this word. And I want us to see over the next two weeks both a defensive posture of refuge and offensive. We're going to see it begin in this text. We're going to see it again next week. God is fighting for us, protecting, defending, delivering. God is fighting with us. Sometimes we hide in the cleft of that rock. Sometimes he tells us to stand on the rock. Both is refuge. Some is defensive. Some is offensive. But see, David is learning something. We're growing with him in the Psalms. I hope you are. He's learning that the greatest battle in his life is not the Philistines. Is he is learning they're sort of easy pickings for God. The greatest battle in his, in his life is his heart. It's what's going on in here that gives David the problem. It's what's going on here that he's pleading to this morning. You see, where I'm finding delight is where I place my devotion. Where I place my devotion is what I'm going to cling to. Is it God this morning? Or is it a good thing that God has given you? If you're taking notes, write this down. Common grace becomes a bad thing when we make it an ultimate thing. Common grace becomes a bad thing when we make it an ultimate thing. And so we learn today that the Lord protects, the Lord rescues, but only the Lord satisfies. So the Lord protects his righteous ones. So look with me in verse 1. This begins with a plea. David's plea in his innocence. He says, Hear, O just cause, O Lord, attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. He's saying, as he said many times, Hear me. This is another way of saying, Help! <laughs> Help me! We've seen this over and over. Psalm 7, O Lord my God. Psalms 10, Why, O Lord? Psalms 13, How long, O Lord? Psalm 16, Preserve me, O Lord. This word just cause could also say righteous plea. And in, in the original text, it could be talking about God. It could be talking about the psalmist. It could be talking about the prayer. The point is he's crying out to the Lord. Look at with me at verses 3 to 5. There's a you and a I. Remember, this is a prayer. There's you, God, and there's I, the one who's praying, the psalmist, David. 
He says, you have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me, and you will find nothing. That's what he's praying. Look at what he's focused on. I have purpose with my mouth not to transgress. With regards to the works of man, by the words of your lips, I have avoided. So you see, you have tried, you have visited, you have tested. I have purpose, I have avoided. Psalms 139 is a, a text that helps us understand a little bit of the harp here. David's very consistent in his prayer. Psalms 139, look at verse uh, 23. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So he's praying, Lord, actively Try me, prove me, test me. Lord, I am innocent as far as I can tell. I'm innocent in my heart. So what could this be about? Well, one commentator guessed, and it's just a guess. The Psalms doesn't tell us the exact situation. This was a situation that impacted David. Happened in 1 Samuel 25. Remember, it was David, Nabal, and Abigail. You remember that situation? David had to help had helped Nabal's men at some point in the past and helped protect them and provide for them and all these different things. And David comes in need. And so he sends the men to Nabal. He says, hey, we're in need of your assistance now. And Nabal says, I don't know who you are. I'm not giving you any of my stuff. You can just get lost. And so his men go back and tell David, this is the height of disrespect in that culture. So what does David say? All right, boys, strap on your swords. Nabal's wife, Abigail, hears this. She hurries and prepares up food, and she takes it to him, and she pleads for mercy, for forgiveness. Forgive my husband. Don't do this thing. David listens. He is restrained. He sees Abigail as the voice of God restraining him from what he calls blood guilt. You see, God oftentimes used people in situations to prove us. This is the picture purifying the integrity of his heart like gold or silver is purified. One guy said it this way, happy is the one who can appeal to God from the integrity of his heart. This is, what it's like. this is not about sinless perfection. You need to hear that very clearly so you're not frustrated. You're going to hear it again next week. He's not speaking of sinless perfection. He's speaking to a covenant God as covenant person. He's saying, I am steadfast. I am loyal. I have been consistent. But he's speaking an individual lament into a situation that he's going through right now. And so he contrasts. There's a couple of beautiful contrasts in his psalms. One is a contrast of his mouth. He, there is mine, yours, and theirs. What he's doing. And so look at it. It's, it's neat. This is poetry. You begin to love it as you begin to understand it. In verse 1, back to Psalm 17. He's talking about his lips. You see that? Give ear to, the, to my prayer. From lips free of deceit. He's speaking of David's lips. He said, my lips are free of deceit. Why? Well, look at verse 4. Because I have regarded the words of your lips. So you see, it's a contrast. The only reason I was kept from, from deceit is because I heeded your instruction that came out of your lips. Now look down at verse 10. 
We see the lips of the wicked. It says, with their mouths, they speak arrogantly. So God is the standard. His lips speaks truth and instruction. David says, Lord, look at my lips. Look at theirs. Does the words of my mouth have fidelity with God's words or the wicked? But then he pleads. He just doesn't stop there saying, I'm innocent. He says, because I'm innocent, I pray for justice. The ESV calls it vindication, verse 2. From your presence, let my vindication come. It means justice. Jesus did this. We talked about Jesus a lot last week in Psalm 16. Turn with me to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2. Jesus trusted in God to judge justly. 1 Peter 2, look at verse 23. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That gets to the heart of it this morning. David's trusting in his protector as Jesus did. For he will judge justly. You see, there is a clarifying, there is a comforting reality to God's omniscience. We should not understand when someone thinks when God sees on them that he is some kind of mean, spiteful father that looks on you with disgust. For God's covenant people were comforted by his omniscience. They're comforted by the fact that God sees everything. God knows everything. And so he contrasts it with God's eyes. Look at verse 2. Let your eyes behold the right. God, you see everything. You see my heart. You see their heart. You hear their mouth. You hear my mouth. God's eyes. Look at verse 8. The psalmist is seen as the apple of God's eye. In contrast to verse 11, where the eyes of the wicked are about trying to destroy, they're looking with anger and vengeful against God's people. And so he said, he's comforted by, this, by God's omniscience. He says, God, you see it. Now bring justice. That's what vindication means. Settle this dispute in this situation. This is what he learned from Abigail in 1 Samuel. I don't need to execute my own justice. I'm going to put it in the hands of God and I'm going back home. God will take care of this situation. God will do what is right. So that's what he did. He's asking not only for vindication, he's asking for investigation. God, you look at this situation. May your eyes see what is right and act on that. I'm innocent. Bring justice. But the whole point of this is to get to the heart of the prayer in verse 6 to 9 when he pleads for protection. Look at verse 6. I will call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ears and hear my words. So there's a, you, you hear the confidence there? There's a confidence. Why? Well, we speak every week about he is, he is a covenant. This is all about covenant. The first book of Psalms, the first 41 chapters, all about God fulfilling his covenant through David. 
But listen, experience is our teacher of God's grace. Experience. The, the difficult, sometimes even miserable, miserably hard seasons of our life is our experience to God's grace. So David has went through enough life now to see that I am his covenant people. God is faithful. And so he continually in Psalms lays his petition over and over and over and over to his God. Just teaching us this is just the normal life of a covenant child of God. And he says, verse 7, protect me with your extraordinary unfailing love. That's what he means. Wondrously show your steadfast love. So we've been saying this a lot. When you hear steadfast, what do you need to hear? Anybody remember? Covenant. Steadfast love. That's what God gives. That's his special grace to his covenant people. Oh, Savior of those who seek refuge. It's his covenant language. But see, he's seeking it. Refuge is something we seek after. How is he going to display this? Look at verse 8. You see the defensive? Keep me safe. Hide me in the shadow of your your wings. This is really cool. This is really a beautiful picture. He comes back to the eyes here. This is what we use when we evangelize people and we try to use creation to show that God is a personal God that created us. Because you see the eyes are created. It is they're the most precious of our body, and they're the most protected. Our eyes don't, do not protrude out. Aren't you thankful for that? I mean, wouldn't we look funny if our eyes were sticking out in front of everything like a fly or something, you know? But what does he do? He insets them. He puts bones around your eyes because they are so precious. He builds our structures to protect them. What else does he do? I mean, think about this. He gives us eyelids. He gives us eyebrows. He gives us eyelashes. All to protect the eyes. This is what he's saying today. So we are protected and precious by God. All saints are dear to God. But listen, this is what he's getting at. The persecuted saints are the apple of God's eye. They are the part of the body that reflects the image of God the clearest. They are precious. And they are protected. What we're seeing here in this defensive is parenting love. I've never seen, it's one of the weirdest things to see a father or a mother who will not protect their children because this gets to the very heart of how God made us as parents. When trouble comes, do parents run? No, we don't run. We protect. You know the hardest thing about being a parent is when your child gets to an age where you can't protect them. It is miserable for a parent. It's not easy being a parent. I feel it. I'm going through it. I still got some coming. This is what it is to be a parent. You want to protect. I might have told this illustration. I think about it every time this comes up, this idea of covering. Camping, fireworks going off down here, and the where people are sitting all over the place, and there's these couple of little boys strutting around like peacocks with their shirts off, thinking that's what it means to be a man, you know. And then fire, the fireworks start falling over, and they start shooting out into the crowd. So what do the little, what do these little boys do? They could run off squealing like pigs, you know. But it was a beautiful picture. Because what did every parent right on the hill do? They covered their children. They didn't run. 
What a teaching moment. This is what we do. This is what God does. This is why he tells you, men, in Ephesians 5, that your job is to nourish and cherish your wife. You know what that means? It means to provide nutrients for growth and protect it as it grows. Men, you will stand before God for the spiritual growth of your wife. We are the picture of God given to protect. That's what God has given us to do, and it matters not whether you do it. God will hold you accountable for it. This is the picture. This is who he's crying to. God, protect me, cover me. We never outgrow that, but we're being protected from something. You see it? Verses 10 to 12. We're from the wicked. You see, they have a character. It comes from their heart. They have a particular way that they speak. They have a particular way that they look. You see it? They close their hearts to pity. With their mouths, they speak arrogantly. They set their eyes cast to the ground. He is like a lion eager to tear as a young lion lurking in ambush. This is the contrast, the righteous of the wicked. That's who I want to be protected from, God. This is the transition of this text that begins from the defensive to being called for an offensive. He's calling for the offensive to start, for the divine warrior to not only cover him and protect him, but now, God, I want you to take heed. I want you to notice them. He's calling for the divine warrior to take notice of these people who hunt God's people like a lion. He's simply saying, Lord, I've asked you to examine my heart, my mouth, my eyes. They're easy to spot. Arise, Lord. Spurgeon said it this way. We are weak and foolish like sheep, but we have a shepherd, wise and strong, who knows the old lion's wiles and is more than a match for his force. Therefore, we will not fear, but rest in safety in the fold. You see, this has everything to do with what you're doing right now. Everything. The sheep only eat if they are resting in the shepherd. And here's here's the picture for sin. I am innocent. They're guilty. I need your defensive protection, Lord. And now here's what we see. The Lord delivers his righteous ones, verse 13 to 15. God is not going to be on the offensive. This is a radical mood shift in the text. It's radical. What's happening here? David gazes away from the wicked that are persecuting him to the God who will protect him. That's why he shifts. And all of a sudden, look at verse 13. It says, Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him. Deliver my soul from the wicked. Look, by your sword. It's amazing. This is almost, he's almost exploding here. Arise, Lord, confront him. Bring him down. That's what he's saying. He's calling for the divine warrior. You remember Exodus 15? The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. He's calling on that God, the covenant God, the God for us. That's what he's saying. Lord, deliver me with your sword. What is he saying? God, fight for me. I'm hiding here. Protect me. Cover me from the elements. But Lord, notice them and take your sword up. This is sobering, brothers and sisters, but this is the Bible. 1 Samuel 25, verse 38. The situation with David and Nabal and Abigail. 
Do you remember what happened? David heeds Abigail's words, and he goes home. Ten days later, later, God strikes Nabal dead. You feel that? That's the fear of God. We can trust God. God protected him just like he said he would. David has learned to depend and trust God. God always does what is right. He delivered them from the wicked. Verse 14. This is, this is important, this, this verse right here. From men by, he's describing the wicked. From men by your hand, O Lord. From men whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children. They leave their abundance to their infants. Why did he describe the wicked that way? You fill their womb with treasure? You satisfy them with children? They leave their inheritance to their kids? Brought to mind Luke 16 with this. You remember Lazarus and the rich man? Lazarus was a beggar. Though he trusted in his God, he had nothing in this life. Had to eat the scraps as it fell from the crumbs with the dogs. The rich man was satisfied with the good things of life. They both died. One went one way and one went the other. The rich man, as he cried out, listened to what Abraham said to him. Luke 16, verse 25. Child, remember that you in your lifetime received the good things and Lazarus in like manner the bad things. Now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. Quote, they may not see beyond their own portfolio, but actually they have been bountifully blessed by what we call common grace. Though even though they are blessed, they are right now trying to annihilate God's servants. They have longed for common grace and have been given it by God. These wicked people have been satisfied with common grace. We have all we need. They even teach, look at it, they even teach their kids to be satisfied with it. This is, this is important. This is the important. Parents, I love you. Don't get mad at me. This is important right here. I have been in ministry in one way or the other since in my 20s, and I am not in my 20s anymore. My wife likes to remind me. I have seen this over and over to devastation. So will you please hear me? This is, there's, there's, this is important because defective parenting leads to discontent children that produce adults who say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. These are the Revelation 3.17 people who go to hell with their church membership intact. So God says, I'm going to spit you out. Because why? Because you don't need me. You're satisfied with what I've given you. What am I teaching my kids to be satisfied with? Because listen, this is important this morning. Because if we haven't happened in your life, it's going to. Your children are going to hit the preteen years and you're going to have an oh my goodness moment when you see your influence waning on your children as they begin to pull away and you realize one day they're leaving and it's quick. 
And so you go into action, and what do we do most of the time? This is how we responded, and it happens for years, I've seen. We pour on the activities for our children. We try to distract them from the bad, and we want to spend more time with them. And is that good, to spend more time with our kids? Yes, it's good. I'm not saying it's good. Don't turn this into legalism. No, this is not. This is important. There's a danger here. The yellow light's flashing. The danger of prioritizing your kids and their activities over gathering with your family to worship your God. There's a danger of prioritizing activities over spending time with other believers studying God's Word. Because here's what we're doing, parents. We teach our kids to be satisfied with common grace when God desires them to be satisfied with saving grace. We teach them not with our words. We teach them with your life. Parents, you must sit down right now with your children while they're young, non-negotiables, things that we do not tread on. Because if you do not, when they start to grow old and get and leave, you will violate your own non-negotiables because you have none. You see verse 14, look at it. I'm not making this up. Verse 14 says that the wicked are satisfied with sons. Do you see it? They're satisfied with what God's given them. God's given me children. I have all that I need. God needs to bring some of us to repentance this morning because many of us have said, my kids are my life. No. What you must teach your children is Christ is your life. You teach them to walk away from God and His family when you teach them that they are your life when you prioritize their activities over God's mission. This is important, brothers and sisters. This is your everyday Christian life. Has your children seen you suffer for Jesus? And if the answer is no, I ask you, why not? Because then delighting in something doesn't always cost you something. This is important, brothers and sisters, because he's saying the wicked, the wicked are easy to spot just look at what satisfies them. They're satisfied with, this, with the stuff of this life. And God gives it to them. They pass it on to their children until they step in front of King Jesus. But look at the contrast. Oh, this is good. The Lord gives confident hope to the righteous ones today. In verse 15, when David says, As for me, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with what? Your likeness. If you've never read Jonathan Edwards, I would recommend him. You just got to read him slow. February 14th, 1747. Jonathan and Sarah Edwards learned this when their 17-year-old daughter died after a week-long fever. Why did she die? Well, you see, she was a godly woman who had spent months taking care of a missionary named, named David Brainerd. And because she took care of him, she ended up contracting what he had, and she died from it. What did Jonathan and Sarah Edwards put on her gravestone? Verse 15. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. 
You see, the wicked are not those who are satisfied with too much. They are satisfied with too little. And he says, the righteous will be satisfied. This is what he's saying. What does the word satisfied mean? It means I will have more than enough. That's what it means. This is why Jesus was the most content person on the face of the earth when he lived, because he had his father. He had all that he needed. This is a quote. I'm just going to paraphrase it. Here's what he's saying. I'm going to be satisfied whether I wake up here on earth this morning or I'll wake up in heaven. If I wake up on earth, I'm going to be satisfied that I'm a friend of God. I'm adopted into the family of God, declared righteous by his, the blood of his son. That's who I am. I am as safe as Jesus. And if I die, then the wicked things of my life in my heart and in this world are gone from me. And I'm in the presence of God. But either way, that's what's going to satisfy me. You see, there is an object of your satisfaction this morning. David said, as for me, it's only God's favor. The God that protects is the God that satisfies. That's why we can look at our satisfaction and see where we're running for refuge. Is this what we're teaching our children? Because, listen, if you haven't had a serious go on vacation with your spouse and decide what your non-negotiable in your family's life is going to be, you need to do it. You need to do it. You need to do it now. And it's never too late to repent of your, with your children. Had those moments. You see, when God is your ultimate satisfaction, I can tell you without a doubt where you're going to turn when your life gets turned upside down. And listen, those are the moments that we teach our children and those watching who are really satisfied. They are. The worst days of your life has been the greatest gift in your life, whether you realize it or not. He teaches us. He teaches others through our life that God is the object of our satisfaction. And listen to me. I'm not trying to be mystical here to not make sense I'm saying to you to run to God is to run to God's family there is no such thing as running to God and taking refuge in him and not finding refuge in his people you see the measure of satisfaction that David longs for himself and for you and for me is complete satisfaction Psalms 36 Psalms 36 verse 9 says this for with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. He's not saying, my children are my life. He's saying, no. My God is my life, and I want my children to see that. Parents, this is a weight off of you this morning. Grandparents, a weight off of you this morning. You are not the fountain of life. Only Christ is. Our job as parents is not to save our kids because we cannot. Our job as parents is to demonstrate special grace in our life so they can see only that satisfies. And must you not suffer for that to, for that to be true in your life to demonstrate it? 
It's true. There's a confident, joy-filled chain in Psalms. It's over and over. We've already seen it last week. Look at verse 11 in chapter 16. I'm pushing this satisfaction as hard as I can. I'm thinking I'm doing it because David's doing it. It says, you made known to me the path of life. In your presence there is what? Fullness of joy. At your right hand there are what? Pleasure. So do you see it? Our relationship with our God is about joy and pleasure. I'm sorry if someone has painted a picture to you that devotion to God is not about joy and pleasure, but they're wrong. What would David say if he was standing here? He would say, are you kidding me? He's, the whole point of, of pointing out the wicked is to say they are, they, not, they are not seeking pleasure good enough because they're seeking in something that is temporal and not that which is eternal. They're not as happy as they should be because they're not happy in you, God. This was always the purpose of God's people, by the way, to demonstrate to the nations that there is only one place to experience fullness of joy and satisfaction. He says, 17 verse 15, we just read it, I shall be satisfied only one way with your likeness. Psalm 73 verse 24 has a now and, the, and then. It says now? What's it going to look like for you now? Now you guide me with your counsel. Then you will receive me to glory. Both of them satisfied. Obeying God's word is not about keeping a rule. It's about pleasure. That's what it's about. When God tells you to not have sex before you're married, He's not depriving you of pleasure. He wants to give you maximum pleasure. That's what it's about, brothers and sisters, all through Scripture. He wants you to experience fullness of joy, but you can only experience it with Him. Quote, The wicked are self-satisfied and share their wealth with their descendants so that they too would be satisfied. But the godly do not comfort themselves with the thought of temporal blessings. They will only be satisfied with the likeness of God. You see, this is what the godly desire to pass on to their kids. If you do not have one penny to rub together to pass on to your children, pass on to them that the fullness of their satisfaction comes through Christ alone. And brothers and sisters, that is enough. Matter of fact, David says it's more than enough. So what? Back to the question where we began. What's satisfying you today? There's a right answer to that. You can either ask it one of two ways. Where do you take refuge when all when everything goes wrong? Where do you run to? Because if you run to anywhere else other than to God and his people. The answer is that something else is satisfying you. So what can I give you today to help, to encourage? Well, I ask myself the question, what did Jesus give when he stood up before people? What could he give them? John 7, John 7, verse 37. I can only give you what I 
see Jesus given. It says, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. God just doesn't want to give you a little something. He wants you to be overflowing. And he is the only thing I can give you today. Come to Christ. He's more than enough. As I laid in the bed, trying to go to sleep, always my problem on Saturday night, thinking about the message and feeling the weight of it, and ran across this quote from John Piper. It just brought the whole Psalms together, what David's trying to talk about with the wicked. The ultimate essence of evil is the failure to be satisfied in God. That's what makes wicked wicked. That's what made the garden the garden of Eden. It was the failure for Adam and Eve to be satisfied in the only thing that would satisfy. Brothers and sisters, this is the heart of the war in your life and mine. It is not the enemy without us. It is not the cancer that we should worry about. It is not the loss of a job. It is my heart when it is satisfied with anything other than that which is holy. I was made to be satisfied with the holy. And brothers and sisters, we must settle for nothing less. My prayer for you last night and my prayer for myself is that we would live under the sovereign yet delightful gaze of a father who proved his love for us by giving his son. So he tells us as we close, Psalms 37, 4 says this, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Lord, as we come, we have gathered together for a singular reason, Lord, to take refuge in you. But Lord, we all need rest. We all need a place where it's okay not to be okay. Lord, you have gathered us together to give us refuge and rest. You do that through equipping us. You do it through allowing us to worship you, to allow us to serve you and to serve your people, which we have done today. Lord, there's so many things to pick and pull at us with. Summer's been busy. It's been stressful. the hard questions this morning. And I've been seeking satisfaction for me and my family this summer. The only activities. Oh God, settle us today. Put your arm around us and kiss us on the cheek. Because we are yours.
hold us. You will not leave us. You are committed to our conformity so that we reflect your son. We trust you, Lord. And now, Lord, we ask you, would you allow us now to stand to our feet and to sing a couple more songs to worship you so that we might be strengthened and encouraged for the fight. And God, fight for us. We ask this as we stand to our feet. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand, let's sing together.